Hello guys and welcome to the Lean With Plants podcast. I'm Chelsea, former overweight, healthy vegan, confused about why I couldn't look like my favorite plant-based influencers even though I was chugging back green smoothies every day. After a decade of unsustainable vegan diets, I learned the truth about weight loss, lost 40 pounds, and now I'm in the best shape of my life even after two kids. Girl, if you've been struggling to drop the pounds as a vegan, stuck in a cycle of self-sabotage, sick of yo-yo dieting and going hungry, never being able to get and stay lean, then this is the podcast for you. Each week I share the no BS truth about why vegan women are overweight, the action steps to get you shedding fat, and the mindset you'll need to get slim for life. I'm stoked to have you here. Let's get started. It is undeniable that losing weight is freaking hard. And what's even more difficult is maintaining weight loss over time. You've probably heard that statistic that 95% of diets fail. I've quoted that statistic at time. And this fact has been used as evidence that long-term weight loss is almost impossible and we are fighting some kind of predetermined ideal weight. In this instance, dieting is seen as not only futile but also dangerous and unhealthy. You've probably heard people talk about reverse dieting, increasing their calories while training their metabolism. Maybe you've experienced this yo-yo effect where you've lost a ton of weight and then very, very quickly you gain it all back to exactly that same amount. Is it true that we have a set point? So this episode, we're going to be talking about some of those concerns. We're going to be talking about what set point is specifically, as this is the concept that most accurately deals with these kind of questions. We're going to be talking about some of the factors that govern how you maintain your weight and why it's so common to gain weight again after dieting and that all-important question, whether it is possible for anyone, you specifically, to get lean. How much predetermination is there in getting to that ideal body weight, that goal that you have set for yourself? So there are four main theories that deal with weight maintenance and the regulation of your specific weight. And in this episode, I'm going to be talking about the first two, which are set point theory and settling point theory. This ended up being such a huge topic that I wanted to break it up into two episodes to really, really do it justice. So in part two of this episode, I'm going to be talking about the general model of intake regulation and also the dual intervention point model, which both of these sound incredibly complicated. I didn't even know they existed before I started researching this, but I'm going to break it down really, really simple and we'll get into that in part two. So to start with, I think it's important to understand some of these kind of concepts Because it helps you know how much control you have over weight gain or loss and helps you make these educated decisions about your choices. So I got asked the other day about reverse dieting and I've seen people talking on YouTube quite often about reversing your set point and the question is often asked, 
is set point theory true? Like, do I have a predetermined weight or is that complete lies? Is it is it not true? And some of these things are so nuanced and that it's simply not a matter of is it true or is it not? There's a lot of factors that go into this. The biggest and most important question here is really how much control do you have over where your weight settles and what you can do about it. But to understand that and how to know how to make those kind of decisions, I'm going to give you a brief overview of this. I think this is going to help you and I, I really think it's helped me doing all this research even though it took a freaking amount of time and I felt like I was studying for a test because now I have the equipment, I have the arsenal in my backpack to defend what I believe, to be a bit more open-minded about things and when I see concepts that people bring up, now I have this information where I go, yes, that is based on logic, that is based on science, that is based on what we know to be true, or I can say, no, that's actually outdated information, that is not true. And I think that knowledge is power. So let's get into the episode. And all of this is really about getting you into the driver's seat of your health and of your weight loss, of your choices, because I'm so passionate about this, you guys. Like, you guys know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a bit, the reason that I couldn't lose weight for nearly a decade was because I wasn't in a calorie deficit. I didn't get consistent with my diet. And part of the reason for that is I did not understand the most basic concept of fat loss. I was following gurus. I was following what people were saying online. And most of it was so dogmatic that I could never take a step back and ask, well, what's the reason behind this advice that people are giving me? Why is someone telling me to eat fully raw all the time? Why is someone telling me that I need to eat 30 bananas a day? Why is someone telling me that I can't eat carbohydrates? No matter matter what it was, I didn't have a base of interpreting that kind of information. So it opened me up for so much misinformation and half-truths, more more half-truths really than anything else. And I couldn't uh, stick to something. I couldn't I wasn't able to be flexible in what I was doing because I didn't have that base of understanding. The more that you guys understand this stuff, the more you're going to be able to know how to make these kind of choices work in your own life. It gives you that flexibility and I think that's super, super important so that you're not swayed by that bullcrap, you're not swayed by clever marketing. So when you're trying to look at interpreting data to come to conclusions, first of all, Understand that every single thing that you will ever read about weight loss when you're looking at scientific evidence is going to be interpreted in light of an energy balance equation, which is basically a fancy way of saying that to lose weight, you must be eating less calories than you burn, and to gain weight, you must be eating more calories than you burn. When you are maintaining your weight, you are in equilibrium, and so all of any kind of weight loss study, any kind of uh, look at what are the mechanisms and the hormones that affect weight loss and behavior, those will be interpreted in light of understanding this concept to be true. So this is based off the law of thermodynamics. Uh, It is not in the same category as a theory. All of these theories have to function within it. It's almost unbelievable that I need to stress this point so much That body fat is determined by the energy balance that you experience, whether you are getting more or less energy than you need to maintain your weight. But there is no way that you can create these theories that explain how and why people lose weight without this law being the guiding 
principle that these theories operate within. Any weight loss study, guys, I challenge you, if you do not believe this to be true, if anyone is challenging this, go and have a little read of any paper on PubMed. Go have have a look at the kind of language that is used. It assumes the energy balance equation is correct. There's no way that you can interpret data without that being true. This is not disputed among scientists and researchers. You cannot come to conclusions about it, like I've said. And what I wanted to do is I just wanted to share a few uh, examples of language where we assume this concept to be true and how that works when you're reading a study. So I'm going to read a few excerpts excerpts from uh, some different articles and you can start to see what I mean. The UK Department of Health recently convened an expert working group to quantify the magnitude of weight change and energy imbalance in the UK population, concluding that the average weight gain was 6.7 kgs over 10 years and that the daily energy imbalance necessary to generate this was about 25 kilojoules per day. So that's one little excerpt right there. You can see that they are talking about what was the needed Imbalance to create that weight gain. So they're assuming that there has to be imbalance, and then they're actually finding, well, what was that imbalance? So here's another excerpt from another paper. Quotes It is important to recognize that this statement does not imply that people can become obese without an energy imbalance. Clearly, an energy imbalance is a prerequisite for weight gain. End quotes. And there's just a few, like, go and have a look at an article you're going to see this more and more and more. So energy imbalance is the reason for weight gain or loss. I hope we're clear on that. Let's move on to why we need these different theories. So if we've established that the reason that you gain or lose weight is because of an energy imbalance, you've either got more calories coming in than you need, or you've got less calories coming in, you've got more energy going out, and that causes a deficit, all of that good stuff. We've established that. Everybody knows this to be true, all right? So in that case, why do we need a theory to explain why we go back to some kind of set point? Why do we need that to exist if this is accepted scientific evidence? The reason is that even though fat mass is governed by energy balance, we actually maintain our weight surprisingly well. So we can and we do maintain this relatively stable weight for long, long periods of time. And even weight gain for individuals tends to be slow over time. So in the study that I mentioned before, where in the UK population over 10 years, the average weight gain was 6.7 kilos, they calculated that you'd need about a calorie surplus of five calories per day to generate that amount of weight gain over that time. So on a day-to-day basis, your energy balance is not going to be within five calories either way. Some days you're going to be eating much, much more than that. And some days you're going to be eating much less. Some days you're going to be exerting much more energy than others. So how can we maintain like this relatively stable weight for years on end and only increase it that little when energy intake and expenditure is going to be fluctuating so, so much. 
So it's clear that we have some kind of regulation that evens out this balance, even though on a day-to-day basis, it's going to be fluctuating all over the place. It's obviously also notoriously difficult to maintain weight loss after dieting. And so a huge percentage of people who lose weight are going to gain it back to the exact weight that they started with or a bit more, almost as if their body is fighting being at a lower weight. It's so incredibly rare to maintain weight loss, even weight loss studies actually measure success in how much weight is regained as opposed to keeping it off entirely. So for example, let's give me, let's look at Susie in the weight loss study. Susie only gained 10 kilos after losing eight over the course of five years, as opposed to the control group who gained 12 kilos over the same time. So success of a weight loss study, if you have a drug and you're testing for how successful it is, they're not going to look just at whether you actually lose weight and keep it off. They're going to look at how much you gain because the control group is gaining even more. That would be considered success, all right? So it's so hard to actually maintain weight loss over time that even weight loss studies don't measure it, measure success by whether you keep it off or not, just whether you keep off slightly less than the control group, which we are all gaining weight as we age, it would seem to suggest. So no one, again, is disputing the energy balance equation. These theories are trying to explain why we have this kind of tight level of regulation over body weight, why we gain that weight back. And you've most likely heard on social media the phrase diets don't work. It's becoming more and more popular uh, with anti-diet groups um, and it's quite popular in the body positivity community. So this is what happens when you take something that we know to be true, right? That it's very, very difficult and rare for individuals to maintain any kind of weight loss and that there has to be a reason why. So in this case, diets don't work is a kind of a concept or a phraseology that attempts to explain why it's so difficult for this to happen. So set point theory is an attempt to explain this phenomenon. So basically set point theory is the theory that your body has this predetermined set weight and that it wants to sit there that it wants you to maintain that set weight. So even if you gain or you lose weight, ultimately you have a lot of mechanisms that are going to fight that change and bring you back to that set weight. That's in essence how set point theory works. I want you to think of this a bit like an internal home thermostat. So you set the temperature for say 23 degrees Celsius, Nothing happens while your room temperature is at that point, 23 degrees. But when it jumps up to 25 degrees, the cooler is activated because there's a discrepancy between what it is set at and what it actually is. Cooler comes on to bring that room temperature back down. If it drops below that to say 20 degrees, the heater is going to come on uh, on to warm it up. So this is how the set point model works. There is physiological, physiological basically just means in your body, mechanisms that regulate body weight 
up or down and it's a predetermined weight that is going to be determining whether this goes up or whether it goes down. So set point was first hypothesized in the fist in the 50s and it seemed to explain a lot of the problems with weight gain and why some people have different levels of body fat and struggle to change that. So this has been an ongoing problem. This is obesity research deals with all of these kind of problems. Why predominantly why is it so hard for people to lose weight and sustain that and why do we have such an obesity problem so a few decades after you have the set point theory hypothesized there is a discovery made and that is the hormone leptin so prior to this discovery fat cells Uh, adipose cells were thought to be inert and that just means that they are not producing anything chemically all right so leptin changed all that because adipose cells do actually produce something they are chemically active and they produce this hormone leptin so your fat cells actually act like an organ they're regulating other areas of the body through hormones which is crazy stuff Leptin is called the hunger hormone and because your fat cells produce it, you have related levels of leptin which influences hunger based on how much fat you have. So in normal cases, fat levels go up and leptin also goes up which means that hunger goes down. So you would regulate energy intake, which is the amount of calories that you're eating, and you'd lose some of that fat, and then weight would stabilize again at whatever set point you have. And the same would be true with losing weight, and I'm sure you've experienced some of this. If you lose some weight, your hunger can actually increase due to dropping leptin levels, and that's actually going to drive up your energy intake because you are hungrier and then you're going to gain a little bit of weight back and you probably will stabilize where you were well this happens a lot of the time anyway so leptin isn't the only factor in set point theory but there was a discovery made where individuals who have genes that can't interpret leptin levels as much like a gene mutation They have uh, extreme unregulated hunger and subsequently high levels of obesity. So this fact alone is strong evidence that there's some kind of uh, set point and when you don't have a regulatory system, which is interpreting leptin, you've basically broken the thermostat. One thing I want to point out here is that most individuals who have obesity do not have issues with interpreting leptin so there's more at play here than just gene mutation if you have the gene mutation where you're not interpreting levels you're probably going to have this unregulated hunger you're probably going to be eating much much more than you need and if that causes you to be in a calorie surplus then you're going to be gaining weight with that but if you have a weight problem You probably don't have a gene mutation, right? There's other things at play. So one of the big problems with set point theory is that it doesn't explain why the prevalence of obesity has been increasing over the past 40 years and that most people are steadily gaining weight throughout the course of their lives. 
It also fails to explain why obesity is higher in low socioeconomic groups in developed Western countries, but higher in affluent members of society in developing countries. So the set point theory is mostly governed by a tight regulation of body weight. It's obviously not true in actual reality. There's a huge correlation between environmental factors and body weight and set point cannot explain that. Set point would seek to undermine social economic factors because set point is regulated by a predetermined point. So environmental factors would be regulated by the set point. You would be eating less depending on whether you were gaining weight, depending on leptin levels. We don't see this to be true. Guys, even the fact that people tend to gain weight after they get married or moving from Asian countries to Western countries, there's environmental factors here that set point theory cannot explain. And lastly, another problem of set point theory is that set point theory is all about ending up at a certain body weight. It's not about a certain fat mass because your body weight can fluctuate independent of what your actual fat mass is. You can gain muscle, right? So if this is all about ending at a certain body weight, that would mean that not only is fat mass tightly regulated by some kind of set, map, set point, but you'd also have to have your lean body mass uh, in a tightly controlled system as well. Because fat mass is only between 5 and 45% normally uh, of your total body weight. So in essence, what set point theory attempts to do is explain that your set weight is governed by the amount of fat cells that you have or it is regulated by your fat cells and it is predetermined but within that you've got another variable which it can't really explain which is your lean body mass. It's ignoring an entire variable in body weight. So I've mentioned that there are some other regulatory systems other than leptin involved in set point theory but as far as I can find out Leptin is the most influential uh, part of set point theory being true. And so leptin is this trigger that influences behavior because of hunger. And when people hear about things like set points and why it's so hard to lose weight over the long term and keep that off, it's implied that this is happening at a physiological, a in your body level. So in this instance, you've got leptin, which is influencing hunger. This is a physiological thing. But then you've got something else that happens is how hunger intersects with behavior, what you actually do with those signals. So even in the set point model, you've got what is happening is you've got physiological mechanisms hormones that are influencing behavior so they are influencing people to overeat and overconsume on calories that overconsumption of calories would cause you to go into a calorie surplus and that would be what would cause you to return to that set point weight so something i want to point out is that hunger and calorie consumption are not married all right you can only gain weight if you are in a calorie surplus. 
So even being hungrier and eating more does not guarantee that you are going to be in a calorie surplus. Hunger influencing your behavior is only going to cause weight gain if and only if the foods that you are eating are causing you to be in a calorie surplus. So the prevalence of extreme hunger still only will result in a calorie surplus if the foods that you are eating result in you being in a calorie surplus. Do you see how it's not that these things are related, but they're not causation in themselves? That hunger influences behavior, and behavior influences the probability of you getting into a calorie surplus. So there's obviously a lot of downfalls with this model, and it's really just too simplistic to explain why your body regulates body weight so well. Notice the main functions of regulating body weight here is a hormones that affect behavior. It's not your base metabolism. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. People talk quite often about training their metabolism, changing their set point. When set point theory, as far as I can see, doesn't seem to propose huge changes in metabolic rate, but more hormonal signals. So ultimately, with this again, if you can re retrain or change your set point, then it's not actually a set point. It negates the entire idea. So I just want to be, I want you to be very wary of people who say that you can put too much stock in this theory. It's just too simplistic to explain. So of these four theories that we're going to talk about, set point theory is the most sim simplistic. Uh, and the bull in the china shop with this is that weight gain over the past 40 years is closely tied to changes in calorie consumption over time. So you've got these measurable levels of calories per person that are produced by the food industry. So in 1970 versus today, taking into account wastages, we can see that that number of calories in the market per person has increased by about 500 calories. So from 2000 and, uh, 1970 sorry, to 2003, that increase in calories in the food chain is directly correlated to expected body weight gain for the population. So if we're using consistent reasoning here, if body weight is regulated by such a tight system in the set point theory, then you would expect that we would have some kind of compensation for the extra weight gain by compensating less hunger, which will result in weight stable, stabilization of the population, even if there was more calories in the market. But here's something that's really interesting. Our portion size have actually increased which I don't think has got anything to do with hunger, personally, everything to do with uh, how hyperpalatable food is now. But the thing is, people aren't eating less in a response to having more fat mass. They're not, we're not less hungry as people. We're actually eating more food. The main change, though, is not that we have increased portion sizes, although we do. We're just eating more calorie dense food. So huge population-based weight gain is not supported by a tightly controlled regulatory system like the set point theory. So set point theory, it effectively denies the role of environmental factors contributing to obesity. It, it assumes that this entire system is based on physiological 
mechanisms. So within your body mechanisms, and this is just not consistent with the data. So something that's really interesting here is that this model is not well received by scientists who study social uh, and environmental factors that contribute to obesity, uh, and that you have a little bit of a split in terms of what people are looking at. So people in the scientific community that are more supportive of set point theory, they tend to be people who are studying at a biological and molecular level, and then people who are more in favour of other models tend to look at social and environmental factors that contribute to obesity. So the second theory that I want to talk to you about is settling point theory. And this is mostly based on environmental factors that determine where your body weight stabilizes. So while set point theory is predetermined body weight, which then regulates energy intake and expenditure, in the settling point model, it's almost the reverse. So this is where intake and expenditure, environmental factors, they change where your body weight settles and that the weight of your body will change based on these environmental factors. So the analogy for this model, if you think about, okay, the thermostat kind of explains how set point works. This is explained like you have a lake, you have water flowing into that, whether that's from the rain or there's from a stream coming in, that would represent calories coming in. And then off to the side of this lake, you have a little pool off to the side and water flows out there. All right, and so the water flowing out is your calories going out, your calorie expenditure, your base metabolic rate and your energy, your non-exercise activity, thermogenesis, which is your non-exercise movement, your exercise, all of the stuff that make up your energy expenditure. So the lake here would rise when you have more rainwater coming in, you've got more energy coming in, and then this pool would also rise with that. And as this pool rises, you've got this kind of settling point of the lake. Because the lake has ridden, risen and now the pool has risen as well. When those two become equal, you've got this new settling point. So as long as that intake, that rainwater doesn't change and the energy going out doesn't change, you've got the settling of body weight. So as long as these, these two levels reach an equilibrium you're going to stay at that point. So settling point works where you've got this inflow, which is the calories coming in, and then you've got this outflow, calories coming out. And whether you've got a lot going out or a lot coming in, and what is the energy balance between those two, that is the difference that is going to dictate body fat or your weight. So this basically means that based on your environment, what's happening uh, in terms of what's coming in, what's coming out, either calories changing or your energy intake, uh, energy expenditure changing, sorry, there will be a settling weight that reaches an equilibrium there. So as you gain weight, your calorie output is also going to increase due to the fact that you as a bigger person uh, have a higher metabolic rate because you just need more energy to function at a bigger body weight. So as your energy expenditure is going up in relation to your body weight going up, soon those two are at an equilibrium. And even though you've got the same amount of calories coming in now, you're going to stabilize at this new weight. So it's almost like there's this 
safety net where you gain a little bit of weight and as long as you don't increase your calories further you're going to stabilize you're not going to keep gaining weight because your energy output increases as well as well as your body weight going up so if you were to look at that from the outside without an understanding of what's happening within your body you would say okay it appears that they've got a set point weight and that the body wants to come back to it and that's why they gained weight back. In fact, the behavior is what dictated a energy balance, imbalance, sorry, I should say, which then regulated these different settling points. So the settling point model is more dynamic, which means it's, it's more of a changing model than the set point model. Um, and it can help to explain why we have increasing body weights based on the availability of these additional calories in the environment that have been increasing since the 60s and 70s. Um, and also environmental factors like getting married or aging, which aging normally changes your energy expenditure. So you're expending less energy, which would result in an increase of fat mass over time. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so settling point, it sounds like it's a better model. It sounds like it's explaining more than set point theory. And I just want to tell you, like, straight off the bat, a, gra a great man, a great mentor once told me, always uh, explain your bias. Always admit your bias. And because I'm super interested in behavior and behavioral sciences, this automatically is a model that sticks out to me more. And you might have heard uh, the phrase, I think it was Doug Lyle was talking about uh, you reach a behavioral equilibrium. And that's the reason for you uh, reaching a plateau. And like I've always held this to be true. But there are problems with this model as well. Again, and here are some of the reasons for these problems. So right about now you might be thinking, okay, so settling point model that explains things better than set point. I'm going to go with that. This is all about behavior. It's all about environmental factors which influence calories coming in and calories coming out. The problem is that it's not that simple. Settling point has some problems as well. The biggest problem with this is that the settling point model is not a passive system. So what I mean by passive system is it's not like that lake analogy where the weight going up and down the amount of expenditure going up and down or the calories coming in and out they are not directly in response to changes in energy balance it's not like if you are playing with like water play with your kids and you tip a certain amount of water out and it flows into another bucket it's not passive like that there are definitely some strong drivers here that seem to protect some kind of set point. So, for example, if you look at the infamous Minnesota starvation experiment, you've got normal weight, they'd be considered lean now, men who were put on a very low calorie diet, they lost 25% of their body weight, a combination of fat and lean mass, and when they could eat again, ad, lib ad libitum, ad limitum, ad libitum. And when they were taken off this restrictive diet and they could eat as much as they wanted again, 
they gained weight very, very rapidly. Some of them even more than they had uh, prior to the study starting. So there's, they had a psychological reaction to restriction that caused overeating. And this was also influenced by how low their body fat stores got. So it wasn't just that they ate a bit more um, and then they kind of settled at that weight and then they ate a bit more. It, it wasn't this passive system. They had a strong reaction to being at that low body weight, to uh, restricting their calories that much. Whether it is psychological, which is obviously still somewhat influenced by brain chemistry or totally influenced by brain chemistry or the fact that they reached very, very low levels of body fat, there was something that was driving them to regain the weight to that point quicker than just being in a passive system. So this is a strong indication that there's some kind of set point that the body is going to actively defend rather than just this passive system of calories flowing in, flowing out, and then settling at whatever point environment dictates. So more evidence that contradicts settling point theory is that during weight loss, your energy output is reduced more than just the decrease from the fact that you are a smaller person. So you've got these all of these kind of mechanisms that actually seem like they defend you from losing more weight. And one of the big ones is that you just simply move less. So it's not just this passive system. You've got these mechanisms that are trying to stall weight loss uh, that are not just related to you being a smaller person. They're trying to reduce the amount of weight that you lose, even if you have decreased your calories. So another thing that we've mentioned obviously before is you've got these powerful hunger signals from dropping leptin levels and these other biological responses to fat loss that make your energy expenditure less than what it would have been if you were not trying to lose weight. Not all doom and gloom, guys. So you've got mechanisms related to body weight that are not just input and output, the lake is somewhat regulated. And these two models represent some of the problems with obesity research in that it's quite divided about the cause of obesity. On one hand, you've got people who are looking at it from a physiological molecular level, and then you've got other people who are looking at this from an environmental, social standpoint. One side with set point theory, you've got body weight mostly determined by genes and predetermined, and settling point theory, which is favoured by environmental scientists. In part two of the series, we're going to look at the general model of intake regulation and also the dual intervention point model. So something to point about these is they are much more integrated models. They combine elements of both the environmental factors and also the physiological factors that govern weight maintenance. So I'm really excited to talk to you guys about that. But for now, what I want to do is address some of the common questions that come up around these two models, in particular set point theory, because 
when I'm looking at YouTube videos or questions about reverse dieting, I haven't actually seen much about settling point theory. And let me know, send me a DM, send me a comment on Instagram. Have you heard much about settling point theory? Because almost all that I hear online is about set point theory. So one of the things that you may have heard is that within set point theory, it's not so much that we have a specific set point, but that we have a set point range. And a set point range is mostly based on a theory that there is something called a thrifty gene. It's the idea that we have uh, differentiating genes uh, based on some kind of like evolutionary uh, natural selection mechanism because of trying to defend against starvation in our history. I think these things are same kind of things that you hear about, like an ectomorph or an endomorph or like a weak gainer, a strong gainer, any kind of the terminology that people used, hippopotamithomorph, you get the idea. So the idea behind a thrifty gene is based on natural selection and the idea that people would have been who are naturally thinner throughout history would have starved out and then we're left with more people who have a naturally higher set point a genetically they're more likely to be at a higher body weight because they would have been more likely to survive and you can see this where people will say well people coming from this particular part of the world they are at a higher body weight because of natural selection that would have uh, favored people who had a higher body fat or a higher body mass. So this seems like a really plausible theory and I'd even thought well hey like this this may be the reason that you know we've got less people who have like a really uh, fast metabolism because that wouldn't be something that is actually a good thing right but what's actually super super fascinating is that when you look throughout human history what really determines whether someone will have survived during famine or not in times of not getting enough food has got nothing to do with fat levels. It has everything to do with whether that person has the ability to access resources. Who has the most trouble getting resources? It's not fat versus thin people. It's the very old and the very young. And these are people who during times of famine and starvation are most likely to die because they cannot get to resources. These are people who are not passing on genes anyway. And so you start to see that it's not as simple as someone being fat or thin and whether that has an advantage and that social factors and uh, behavior of individuals and things like class structures and all of that has a huge influence on whether people can access resources and all of those kind of things, all right? Very, very fascinating stuff. So the other factor on passing on things like strong genes, people talk about, oh, well, like this person has like a, they've got like a strong uh, gainer or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. So strong genes, they don't really have that much to do with fat levels either. Strong genes in terms of what gets passed on and what dies out are mostly determined by things like disease susceptibility. 
So you're much more likely to survive if you don't get sick, you don't die from sickness, not whether you are fat or thin. So I have to admit, I've not looked into this theory as much as set point and settling point theory, but from what I have read, it does not seem logical or to have enough weight to hypothesize that people are strong gainers, weak gainers, ectomologists, ectomorphoses based on historical starvation. I don't think that there's enough weight with this theory to think that it has ever any destination or weight, excuse the pun, to whether you are going to be at sitting within a certain range or not. I want to quantify this statement. There are obviously genetic factors to weight gain and weight loss. Just in the fact that not being able to receive leptin signals is going to cause someone to be extremely hungry and that is most likely going to result in obesity. But this does not mean that this is necessarily something that has happened through natural selection or uh, typical evolutionary processes. I just want to put that out there. Something else I want to point out about this theory is that when we think of like the differences in weight between individuals who seem like they eat similar amounts of calories. Now we're getting into what is the difference between someone who is able to get to a very, very low body weight and they seem like they're eating the same as someone who is at a higher body weight. What's actually going on here? So in that case, when you're looking at the differences in the weight, or maybe the settling weight of individuals who seem to eat similar amounts of calories, what we tend to do is we tend to think, okay, so maybe they're they're a, a good gainer, they're a bad gainer, they've got a weak system, they're ectomorph, blah, 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 they've got a different settling point, and that that is dictated by metabolism. But I want to point out here that metabolism is only one variable in the difference in energy balance between individuals. So when you're looking at someone who maybe they should be at a higher body weight because it looks like they're eating so many calories or they're eating way more calories than you, but they are slimmer than you. One of the biggest differences between individuals that has a huge effect on energy balance is non-exercise activity. And I've done a whole podcast on non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is otherwise known as NEAT. Go check that podcast out. Uh, it helps to explain a lot of the difference between individuals in terms of the weight that they settle at or why it's easier for some people to eat more calories and get away with that. Um, but one of the biggest reasons is because we have these huge variations in how much calories people burn from their non-exercise activity. And to reiterate, we tend to think that this biggest reason that we can't lose or get to the same weight as someone else has to do with either the set metabolism, which, think about it, even set point theory is more influenced over calorie consumption due to hunger, not metabolism anyway, or that they've got a difference in metabolic rate. So your your metabolism, 60% of your calorie burn, your non-exercise activity uh, can vary a lot. So think about this in terms of some numbers. That could be 300, 600, or even 1,000 calories in difference between individuals who are at similar 
body weight. So if you add a similar body or fat mass to someone, you would expect that you would have uh, similar metabolic rates or within that realm, especially if you're the same age as someone. But then you're looking at, okay, so there might be slight variations in your metabolism, your base metabolic rate. But then you're going, okay, so on top of that, part of your energy expenditure being your non-exercise activity, 1,000 calories of difference, that would look dramatically different in, what you, different in what you could eat among individuals, and it would seem like that person had a higher metabolism and that they had a genetic advantage to you. It would seem like there was some kind of predetermined set point but what, we're, what I'm trying to get out here is that we're not seeing the full picture. At the end of the day, what matters most is going to be that you focus your efforts on what you can influence. And as you're going to learn in the next episode in part two, you have got uh, a lot of mechanisms that are influencing weight loss, weight gain, and where you fit in that realm. But you have a choice always as to what you put your focus on. You have so much influence over factors that have huge influence on your body weight. Calories coming in and some of the calories going out. Remember, weight gain or weight loss is always a function of energy balance. All we're trying to figure out here is how much environment versus genetics have on that equation. I hope that this episode has felt empowering rather than confusing. And if you are struggling to understand some of these concepts and it doesn't make that much sense, then you are not alone in this. This is incredibly complex uh, information. And my hope here was to bring it down into something a little bit more simplified. So if you like this kind of episode and you appreciate the research that's gone into this, then please consider uh, giving me a rating and also leaving a little bit of review. What that does is it helps to get the podcast out to more people. It helps more and more people get empowered with this kind of information so that they can get and stay lean in the healthiest way possible on a plant-based diet. You are part of making that happen when you give this a rating and a review and also share it on your social media channels. Don't forget to subscribe so that you can download part two when it comes out and I will see you, talk to you, talk at you next week. Hope you have a good one. Bye!